We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Tony Greer, trader and editor of The Morning Navigator. How are you today, Tony? I'm great, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. And I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of diving into some of these, some of the, the ideas that you, you go through in your work quite a bit here. So you start to navigate trades for each quarter by setting out some broad dynamics of how you see some macro trends develop over that time period. So if you could, let's start with understanding how you saw the setup coming into this year, into this quarter for the broad themes that you were expecting to play out. Yeah, sure. The, um, I think a good way to, to approach that, Tom, is to look at it the way that I had been looking at it sort of pre-COVID with the way the market was behaving and the way the market was behaving uh, sort of into the COVID, even, even, even post-COVID, is that the Fed was inflating assets. And if you were long assets, you were going to be okay, mm-hmm. right? So that was like my main thesis that obviously had to morph when the Fed started raising rates and you know getting serious about inflation, so now it's kind of like um, we've got a counterforce to the inflation that is sort of I'm calling it sort of politically systemic type of inflation, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna go um, to carbon neutral at you know the speed of sound by 2030, there are certainly going to be a lot of um, you know inefficiencies and kinks along the way. Um, and that are going to cause, I think, you know, quite a bit of inflation if we're going to attack energy supply, you know, along the, alongside that transition. Mm-hmm. So with the idea that that is going to be, you know, a consistent source of inflation um, coming from the political side, that the sort of central banks are stuck with fighting it as best they can, what with, you know, their tools of raising rates and trying not to sort of collapse the stock market, which has been running on, you know, excess liquidity for so long. So um, to go into that, you know, that, that's kind of how the framework has changed for this quarter, you know, for the first quarter uh, playbook. And I'll be working on the second quarter playbook at the end of March in a couple of weeks. And the theme that keeps developing for me is that markets are totally chaotic right now. And I think a lot of it has to do with the yield curve being buried at, you know, minus 75, 80s points. And I'm referring to twos, tens, just to, to pick a, a, the most basic one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the curve inversion, we're now, first of all, we're at a level where the curve is inverted steeper than we were before the dot-com bust and before the great financial crisis. You know, the curve was inverted both of those times at, you know, minus 30, 40 basis points. And here we are at minus 90 basis points, um, you know, probably heavily involved in fifth generation warfare. And even for traders with 30 30 years of experience, I'm wondering which way to look when I wake up in the morning, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I I go back to that framework that the the inflation that we're seeing is going to be, you know, pretty consistent. They're going to have ways to fight against it, right? They sold the the Biden administration sold a wad of the SPR that was tremendously effective in getting gas prices off of five dollars, um, and they, they they made an announcement that they're going to sell some more. So there's some an opposing factor, um, you know. And like I said, the Fed's stuck in the middle. So we're going to figure out how the Fed handles this. 
what I care about the most to get to the point is what rates and what the dollar are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of gives me the um, that gives me the green light on how aggressively I can trade my commodity positions, if that's fair. You know, all the commodities to me are kind of in a very similar layout where they're sort of, uh, you know, on the supply side, you know, there's there's constraints on the supply side. Inventories are low. Demand seems reasonable, you know, across the board for, you know, most everything. And the price action sucks, you know, aside from, you know, aside from, you know, even I mean, recently things have backed off and kind of looked pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tame. And the Bloomberg Commodities Index is backed way off its highs. You know, it's funny. I looked up the last time that we spoke was um, about a year ago mm-hmm. and I was looking for, you know, the same thing where, you know, policy to cause a big commodity boom and we got the commodity boom and then we are now literally a 180 degree turnaround and round trip to where we came from a year ago mm-hmm. so you know that that whole uh that whole dynamic has been you know partially caused by you know the fed fighting inflation with higher rates you know the spr being spilled out um, you know, we've had warmer than usual weather in the U.S., which has kept natural gas, you know, literally just capped and, and falling for the most part. I think it may have turned around now or at least it's trying to. But, you know, that was an episode that we just lived through with natural gas going from 11 to 8 to 2 pretty quickly. So um, there are deflationary forces out there still like there have always been. There's still commodity supply like there's always been. So my idea is to just try to stay in the right sectors, you know, and that that's always sort of my my plan of attack is to say, you know, where do I need to be with my money that's going to perform this year? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I started off thinking that over the turn of the year that not much was going to be different in the new year and that energy should perform, natural resources should perform. And with rates probably going higher, tech might remain under pressure and continue to have a couple of lousy years. And what happened was we got the short covering in tech right out of the gate this year. And because a lot of those names and sectors had fallen so far, you know, they have so much to retrace on the upside. And, you know, that changed the complexion of a lot of sectors, you know, so so the sectors that were, you know, like social media that was just on its way down for a whole year last year, finally found a bottom and rallied. And now you've got Netflix and NVIDIA, you know, leading tech back out of this whole um you know, so it's really it's an interesting dynamic. So what you've got to do then is pivot your book and say, OK, well, then let me grab a hold of semiconductors. You know, let me try to get a hold of the sectors that while I may not be bearish, the charts leave a lot of room for upside retracement. And those are the kind of trades that I can buy into. So really, the whole the whole year so far, Tom, has been sort of, you know, staying quick on your feet Um Continuing to let the market tell you what's going on rather than, you know, form an opinion and God forbid, think that the world is going to conform to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in this tape, you know, with the headlines that we've been seeing, you know, attacks on infrastructure all over the world and things like that, that are, you know, inherently bullish commodities to me. Um, it's hard to have a blanket idea, but that's the plan that I'm sort of navigating. I hope that made sense. And I'm happy to sort of, uh, you know, drill down into any areas that you don't want that you want to talk about. I don't want to just keep talking here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I like to try to let my guests explain where they're going. And there's a, a million jumping off points. But why don't we start with that yield curve inversion? It, it seems like such an important or or in the past, it has seemed like such an important indicator. Do you think that is kind of broken? And how do you how do you think about that? 
you know, I don't know if it's broken or if I'm not good enough at reading it or, or what it means, but what it has generally meant is that you've got to expect sort of uh, economic data uncertainty, waterfalls in the bond market, waterfalls in the equity market, um, and expect the uncertain, a little bit more volatility than usual, right? We're not in like the 2014 to 2018 time period where, you know, the market was just grinding higher on, you know, better economy, low interest rates, and, you know, literally low low volatility. So now we're seeing that all change um, across most asset classes. And you, like I said, you've got to adjust. So the yield curve for me just means, you know, and like I said, Tom, I'm not a bond trading expert. What the inversion means to me is that, you know, the market is perceiving the economy as being, you know, sort of on the move somewhere, right? There's definitely, the market is picking up signs of inflation. The bond market, did, you know, twos did not just go and fly to a new high on relatively benign uh, headline inflation data because they don't sense more inflation coming. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I looked at last week and how the market reacted in that next week after we got CPI and PPI. And to me, you know, when I read the data, you know, the data wasn't terrible, but it was, you know, sort of signs that inflation is going to be with us for longer. And I feel like that's what the bond market is reflecting. Mm -hmm. So there's that side of the market that kind of is really super sensitive to these inflation triggers and treasury sell off. And of course, there's going to be parts of the bond market that are sensitive to other weak signs of economic data, like weak housing and things like that. And, you know, you'll see uh, the treasury market rally and rates back off. But with the inversion, it kind of just keeps me on my toes and to, to sort of not expect, um, you know, the data to all be one way or the market to all be one way. And sort of, you know, as a trader, what you what you build into your plan is you trade a little bit more often. Mm -hmm. Right. When, when when things are going your way, you know, you unfortunately part with it faster because, you know, the last time this happened, it went the other way the next day. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, you have to have, feel that give and take and, and be a little bit less headstrong with your positions. Um, but the beauty is that I feel like positioning is pretty tame in this market. You know, we, we've seen um, open interest in crude oil, you know, really come off hard in the last several years. I think it has a lot to do with lower U.S. production, but I think it also has a lot to do with less speculation um, in the markets because we haven't seen, you know, for example, a gigantic um long or short position that the market tends to draw a bullseye on and start, you know, pinning for the stop loss in the other direction of, right? So with positioning kind of tame, you know, it's been a, a market that you can just put your positions on and trade your view and not have to worry too much about, about getting buried in sentiment unless you get too bearish stocks at the lows. That's one thing that I think is a kind of a pervasive um, theme to the markets right now is that you know the the inverted yield curve definitely does you know conjure the idea that a recession is coming mm -hmm. to me you know the majority of of the trade world population is looking for a recession and also necessarily thinking that that means that valuations and stocks have to go lower and i don't necessarily think that that's the case i don't think that that's the right way of thinking about the stock market mm -hmm. but we'll see what happens you know, on your on the idea of inflation, is it kind of a, a chicken or the egg problem here of inflation causing rising commodity prices or rising commodity prices causing more inflation? How do you think about that dynamic? 
Yeah, you know, it was first it was commodity prices got out and got on their horse. And, you know, uh, gasoline went from basically two bucks to five bucks when the Biden administration took office, you know, after the several executive orders. Um, so that was a kind of straight line commodity move that didn't show up in headline inflation until a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Right. And then by then um, they were lo- unloading the SPR. Natural gas was having an episode on the downside because there was warm weather, warmer weather than usual, basically around the world. Um, and we had that slide and then the sort of pullback in headline inflation finally showed up. You know, so it, it it's it, the, the the dog wags both ways, in my opinion, Tom. I think if that's fair to say, I feel like I've seen a little bit of both. But what I am counting on is that, you know, the commodity markets are still, you know, even though they've backed off quite a bit, they're still undersupplied. The demand is still relatively strong. You know, I'm talking about the energy markets where, you know, global global gasoline demand is still growing. And that's why the crack spreads are all very well bid and the calendar is still pretty tight. And I feel like those are the dynamics that are going to take over on the commodity side and keep that rally going that will sort of keep headline inflation in the works for for some time to come. If that's a fair uh, answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So, Tony, how do you stay up to date on any of these dynamics changing? And when do you make the decision to back off of one of these one of these theses, if there is a change in that, like, you know, is there a certain point where you see maybe, maybe natural gas is a good example. Cause I know you had a, a certain target at the beginning of the year on that. And I think it went lower, like quite a bit lower than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have as much of a target in natural gas last year. What I'm just recently getting bullish now is quite honestly, the only view that I've had other than it's likely to go up. Like I haven't traded or been as bullish natural as I have been WTI crude oil and diesel fuel. Mm-hmm. So if I can give you, I'll give you an example within that context that, that comes to mind is, you know, I belong, for example, Marathon Petroleum for, for quite a while since last year on my pad, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the biggest U.S. refiner, right? Um, that stock rallied really, really sharply while the let's call it the 321 crack spread on Bloomberg rallied from say $20 to $60, right? That's Marathon Petroleum's margin right there, right? So if you're a refinery, you just went from making 20 bucks a barrel to 60 bucks a barrel, obviously your earnings are gonna reflect that. Excuse me, and that's why all those stocks rallied all year last year and were some of the best performers. But the crack spread peaked in June at $60 around the Russia-Ukraine invasion and backed off back to $30 after that. Mm-hmm. So the whole time I'm watching this pullback in the crack spread, I've got my finger on the sell trigger in Marathon Petroleum because I'm waiting for it to you know, break its uptrend or do something like that and, and maybe collapse. So I'm ready to make a sale and take profits. And the market in Marathon never got to my trailing stop. You know, so the trend remained, you know, in positive territory because broadly speaking, EMP stocks were trending higher and that sector was trending higher. Mm-hmm. And while I was ready for one of the driving dynamics to take me out of the trade, you know, it definitely pulled Marathon back off the highs a couple of times. But Marathon Petroleum stayed on its own within its own uptrend. So that was just an interesting dynamic that sort of brought me out of last year even more bullish of refineries, right? Watching that behavior in 2022, 
where the crack spread went from 30 to 60 and they rallied and then it went from 60 to 30 and they kept rallying, that sends a signal, right? That, that sends a signal that refineries are wanted, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the, uh, within the equity complex. And I don't even think that the, uh, you know, all we've seen really is tremendous outflows from a lot of the energy ETFs. Right. And I think that's, that's sort of testament to the size of the trade that uh, the size of the people that think, we are heading for a recession and are probably betting on a lot of demand destruction. Mm, okay. So yeah, that's a that's an interesting interesting point there about the idea that recession brings a good amount of demand destruction within the oil complex. How does let's say balancing that on the other side with you know this this long war we're almost or I think we're a year in now and also maybe China's reopening, how does that play into that thesis or your thinking around that as well? Well, I, I just wrote a note the other day um, that was very much, you know, I added oil to my view matrix because I wanted to be battle ready. That was, um, you know, that was the name of the article, the name of the note that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And it was really just about the fact that, you know, we, we just escalated, you know, it's been a year obviously with since the Russia Ukraine invasion then you see Joe Biden head over to Ukraine. You see um, Vice President Kamala Harris call President Putin, uh, you know, accuse him of how crimes against humanity. Then you see Anthony Blinken potentially accuse China of helping Russia with arms in, you know, the conflict against the U.S. and Ukraine. And you see public support starting to fade for the Ukraine effort here. And because it has this big, huge um, propaganda machine attached to it, I get the feeling that, you know, I get a little bit worried that I'm going to wake up one morning and crude oil is going to be $20 higher and I'm going to have to go figure out why that just happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and it seems like, you know, it's not something that I'm, I want to bet on, but as a risk manager, you know, I look at the way energy is trading and I see that the downside feels limited and I look around the world at what's going on. And, you know, then Putin immediately, while Biden was in Ukraine, you know, did some ballistic nuclear missile tests. And so that just makes me a little bit nervous. I'm shocked that it doesn't make the market nervous, but it's also not making the market curl over and sell. So I don't I feel pretty comfortable, you know, long oil and oil products and oil stocks at these levels, just because I feel like the upside is super, super vulnerable to a headline. Now, the market isn't really pricing in that risk, as you can see. I mean, oil is $75 a barrel, the, you know, the price that I've been saying that it likes for weeks now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no there's no upside shocker to any of this uh, saber rattling going on over the last week. So maybe I'm overreacting to that, which is possible. Or maybe I'm early uh, and maybe I'm just dead wrong. You know what I mean? And oil is going to continue lower, but that's not the way that I'm looking at it with the world shaping up the way it is. So, yeah, I'm factoring in trying to factor in everything that I see going on and, and have risk on where I don't think that that agrees in price or at least where the risk reward lines up and things like that. Those are the trades that I've been hunting all year, Tom. And it's hard to, they're hard to find. Like we said, it's been one of the toughest years to figure out in a long time. Mm-hmm. Tony, as we're, as we're talking about the crude price, what's the significance of the break-even five-year versus West Texas intermediate crude price? I know you, you kind of look at that. So, why is that an important indicator for you? Well, you know, they're they're not I'm gonna not gonna call them like a one-to-one correlation or anything like that, but the break-even five year has been a really great beacon for you know what the market is is expecting on the inflation front. 
you know, it, it, it wrote, rallied the whole year through 21 and 20, and then finally found a high and, you know, sold off when the Fed started fighting inflation in 22. And then we backed off to the previous year's high and we're bouncing again. So to me that, you know, the break even five year really fits, um, really, really gives you an accurate depiction of market based inflation expectations. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, the, the break-even five-year is looking over at energy prices without a doubt, right? And and so, you know, it, it finally, you know, broke the uptrend in the break-even five-year when, you know, oil spiked and peaked into the Russia-Ukraine invasion and then finally started slowing as we had sort of a deceleration in headlines, right? As the sort of, you know, the known knowns became quantifiable and it was like, okay, this is what this risk is all about. And the price finally backs off. And then it backed off right into um, the summer of last year, where heading into the election, the administration decided to spill the SPR to sort of help it a lot lower. And I think that's what probably kept oil from trading up through 100 bucks last year. But I don't want to get too far off topic. Mm -hmm. Those things, you know, those if you look at them on the charts together, they sort of have been tending to trend in the same direction and have similar um, pivot points. So that's why I think it's relevant to follow those two together as an oil trader, you know, kind of keeping a close eye on market-based inf inflation expectations everywhere I can get them. Mm -hmm. So that's that correlation. So how does the dollar play into all of these theses as well, Tony? You know, the dollar has had a, a pretty dramatic uptrend for the last two years. Is that now broken? And that, in a lot of ways, helps a lot of these other trades as well, because all of these commodities are priced in dollars? Uh -huh. Great point, Tom. Uh, the dollar is super central to a commodity trader's uh, radar screen, obviously. So I do think you 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 touched on one point that has that dollar trend higher peaked and turned, and I can make a good case that it has. You know, I, it, it's no you know you got first of all you have to look at what stopped it from going up because if you remember last year. You know, it wasn't a question of if the dollar was going up that day. It was just a question of how much, mm -hmm. you know, and it was a question not of, you know, whether you was going to the dollar index was going to be up one percent that week or three percent that week. And all of a sudden that dynamic changed and it changed because in the UK they had to intervene when uh, Liz Trust took office and everybody lost confidence in the gilt market and it started collapsing so they decided they had to defend the gilt market by buying gilts and by buying cable um, against the rest of the world. So that was the first central bank uh, shot across the currency market bow that turned the dollar quite a bit. And then the dollar bulls came roaring back. They ran dollar yen up to 150 and the Bank of Japan said, whoa, 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 whoa hold on a second. You're starting to break shit over here now. Right. So they start defending the yen. If you look at the chart, those two central banks mark the top of the dollar move and then the collapse down through there. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, Tom, you know, technically speaking, the writing is on the wall so far where the dollar should fade, a uh, dollar index I'm talking about, just mm -hmm. to keep it simple, should fade resistance now and potentially head back lower. Now, the reason I think that is because the narrative has picked up a lot of the, the central bank digital currency narrative has picked up a lot of momentum, I feel, in the last three to six months where, you know, whether it, maybe it's being discussed over here, but closer to being implemented in other countries. 
Um, so I think that that could potentially take purchasing power away from the classic greenback. And then, you know, you, you have to have your eyes open to see what Putin and Xi Jinping and Mohammed bin Salman are trying to put together and Modi behind the scenes where they're pretty much setting up their own commodity markets to be traded in their own currencies so that they can go around the petrodollar. And if you ask me, that's a big part of the reason why we're talking about going to war and escalating things right now against China and Russia together. So, you know, this picture gets a lot um, it gets a lot murkier if you try to figure out the political implications, because that's something that I'm not ju I'm just not good at. You know, Tom, I just kind of look at the screens and let them tell me what the hell's going on. And, you know, we are in a period of dollar bearish dollar move retracement right now. And that just seems logical with the move in yields, right? So dollar yields took off and made a new high and call it the two-year yield. Um, not shocking that the dollar is going to pick up a bid and cause short covering on something like that. But if the narratives that I just described are still, you know, those currents are still as powerful as I feel like they are, then I think the dollar can trade a lot lower this year still. So does a gold trade coming into this year depend mostly on the dollar as well? Or are there other reasons for you to look look at and be long gold, Tony? There, I think there are other reasons to be long gold. Um, but I do think that, you know, you, as we've just witnessed, if you've got the dollar um, going against you, if the dollar's rallying, that's obviously going to be a heavy headwind for gold. So, you know, that's what we just saw was that period where yields had found a high, gold finally bottomed, right? And yields backed off and consolidated and gold went on a great run. Then all of a sudden yields popped again and all the money came out of precious metals and everybody said, oh, let's stuff our money in the treasury market at 4%. You know, so I think that there's, that's a, a big, big dynamic of what's driving the gold market. But I think on the other side of that, if it's true... If it's true that central banks are really buying gold at the pace that they're buying it and sort of um, diversifying dollar reserves by buying gold, which is the story that you read, you know, that's that's a really compelling story for gold, considering we're in a pretty inflationary environment. So I guess the head scratcher was really why was gold not rallying while headline inflation went from two to seven percent. Right. And I think the beginning of that answer is, number one, I think Bitcoin was soaking up a lot of the liquidity in the in the room at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not necessarily saying that's 100 percent why, but, you know, it was clear to me that in 2021, you know, Bitcoin was the best inflation hedge and gold was not, you know, and then you got to 2022 last year where gold didn't do anything on the upside either. And we saw higher prints and headline inflation. So right now, gold is doing a crappy job at being an inflation hedge, but I still think it's doing a pretty good job as being a monetary hedge, mm -hmm. you know, with, which is kind of the reason that I prefer to stay long physical and not worry as much about that gold trade um, that seems to be crowded and, and, and obvious and, and that kind of thing. So as long as I've got coins um, under my pillow, just in case the dollar really, really devalues in a terrible way, then... then um, that's the way that I want to approach the gold market. It's sort of a long physical always type of thing. That's fair to say, Tom. Yeah. And I, I think obviously a lot of the geopolitical risks that we went over earlier here play into that thinking as well, right? Yeah, totally. You know, it's um, if we're going into a period of resource nationalism and I was in charge 
I know that I would be hoarding quite a bit of fucking gold. Excuse my French, quite a bit of gold, you know, and that seems to be what China is doing. And so you want to keep an eye on what they're doing, and especially if they're trying to have a major, major effect on the currency market, like the way they are. So, you know, if you look at the fact that, you know, Russia diversified, uh, you know, from U.S. treasuries, and apparently they don't hold anymore, and they've significantly increased their holdings of gold. You know, China is another one of the big um, central banks with a huge, huge uh, physical gold position. So you have to respect that. Um these are the countries that are getting nationalistic about commodities. And that's something that, you know, you have to really sort of raise an eyebrow when you see the U.S. spilling out the SPR at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's saying, oh, we're going to take the exact opposite approach of that then. Huh. OK. You know, let's let's see how that works out. You know, and I don't know the answer yet. But like I said, if I was uh, playing a game of global stratego right now, I, I would be sucking the balls full of physical gold for sure. Yeah, sometimes that political expediency doesn't necessarily make sense in that in that broader the, the broader way of thinking about as you say having reserves going into this geopolitical climate. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky right now, isn't it? Yeah. So one of the other things that I'd like to go over Tony is kind of the the behavior of natural gas and any of your thinking around that. You know, we we did kind of mention it earlier. How do you explain the behavior of this market this year and getting to such lows in the middle of the winter here. Was that a lot of buying ahead of the expected cold winter and, you know, the, the volatility in Europe that didn't end up happening? You know, how do you look at that? And then also going ahead or or looking ahead at even next year? Yeah. So I think, Tom, that the, the reason that we had such an overshot and such an exaggerated downside is because the way that Europe's winter played out left us with a pretty big, you know, well, I wouldn't say big, left us with a mini bubble on the upside. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the world was was quite bullish natural gas, you know, for that run and natural gas, you know, stayed up at the highs at around eight, nine dollars for seven, eight dollars for quite a while while Europe was going through its crisis of seeing electricity prices spike to 300 euro per megawatt hour. Mm -hmm. So that's when it got hairy over there. That's when Dutch TTF natural gas prices were flying off the screen. And, you know, like, like, like anything else, the the cure for high prices winds up being high prices. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was actually the, the, the reason for natural gas backing off, but Europe was really, really, I mean, they had to spend half a trillion dollars and got Mother Nature on their side with warmer weather to fight their way through the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, let's not forget that they're the ones that bought natural gas like a drunken sailor up to $10 to fill up their storage tanks for the winter. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if you saw that pan out, you know, it was hard to think that the price was going anywhere but higher. And the next thing you know, you know, you get six to eight weeks in a row of warmer than expected forecasts. I mean, we essentially had no winter, I would say, is fair in the Northeast, in the U.S., and also a very, you know, tame situation in Europe. Mm -hmm. So there was not massive need for, you know, all the heat capacity that would have normally been burning. And they got let out of a bad trade. You know, and, you know, the the game there is it's obviously not over, 
Um, obviously, with somebody blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, the European gas situation is not over, right? So whether whether it's directly related to the Nord Stream or Russia decides to close the taps in retaliation or something like that, I, my guess is that natural gas is going to go into play again before next winter, mm-hmm. right? But what happened was, you know, on that and that crash down, you know, we had the same, you know, set of hotter than expected prices here, uh, temperatures here in the U.S., we probably had a market that was a little bit long, if anything, and we saw natural gas crash to $2, right? So my what I just have been writing about and keeping a close eye on is that, you know, we've definitely seen everybody throw natural gas out like, like the baby with the bathwater in terms of commodities. Like nobody can stay long something from eight to two, right? So that is officially gone from everybody's position sheet and everybody's kind of just watching now to see what happens. And when you see the price action like we saw last week, and this may sound like a little bit of tea leaves, but a lot of times it winds up becoming to coming to fruition. You know, natural gas has been, you know, been in a low range of like two and a quarter to 275 at the bottom. Last week, it took a nosedive through the bottom of the range, tested the dollar handle, right? What traded 195 and then back above $2 and 195 again. And then it traded straight to 270 last. Right. Like this move off of that one dollar handle, one touch has been a straight line. Right. So in my opinion, now, if we go through the top side of that old two set two and a quarter, two seventy five range after having that spill at the bottom and recovery, man, then that that's to me, that's when the upside is vulnerable. And if you want to just look at the you know, if you want to see another <clears throat> example of that pattern, Look at the S&P when it was at the lows, uh, it was in a range of like 3,600, 3,900. And all of a sudden on a Thursday, I think it was October 16th, if my memory serves me correctly, it took that 100 handle spill to 3,500 and 100 handles back to 3,600 in the same breath, mm-hmm. right? So that's when a trader is like, oh my God, here comes a big spill. We just broke the bottom of the range and the security comes flying back up into the range and keeps going. That is as bullish price action as it gets, mm-hmm. you know, and we just saw natural gas do that. And so far it's panning out. And with, you know, there's like the thing could double and not even reach resistance on the upside, you know, so it's a really, really tempting trade to get into down here. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see if the if the physical side and if the narrative holds up, um, but that's low hanging fruit to me that, that I'm probably going to be trying to trade one way or the other if it happens. And we're, right. we're kind of right on the doorstep with natural at 275, right? Or 265 right now. Mm-hmm. One of the other themes that you laid out kind of looking ahead to this year and this quarter was the aggressive stance of the administration that they were maintaining towards their carbon neutral targets. So what materials do you think continue to benefit from this trend? Is it aluminum, copper, the the electric or energy metals? How do you look at that at that play from from your perspective, Tony? It's really broken right now, Tom. It's really hard, right? Because we, we know that we've still got the pedal to the metal in terms of our transition to electric battery power, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the administration and the powers that be are not letting up on that, right? We still see John Kerry just weeks ago, you know, claiming that it's unbelievable that, you know, people like him are actually trying to save the planet <laughs> and are going around the world and we're figuring out how to lower the carbon, right? That they, They've got their pedal to the metal, mm-hmm. right? So there's no let up. Knowing that seats, knowing that there's no let up, 
you would look over the commodity world, which is pretty low inventoried at the moment, and say, man, they must be soaring. Guess what? They are not, right? Aluminum is bottom feeding. And aluminum, nickel, uh, zinc are all below their two, all below all of their moving averages right now. So all three commodities are have disappointed the trading public and are still pretty much somehow, you know, not rallying sharply, mm -hmm. right? Now, cobalt is another story. You know, lithium is another story. There's probably some shortages of those. There's some shortage stories of those on the tape. To me, they aren't as tradable. They're just part of the sort of rare earth complex that goes alongside the electronic vehicle story. So it's been a kind of disappointing trade for a while to be in the metals because of that transition, because we just ran into this whole idea that the economy is going to be slowing down so aggressively. Mm -hmm. Right. So that took the piss out of the whole metals rally. And now we're kind of back to where we started with copper trying to break out, but not doing a great job and the rest of them just not going anywhere. So that's one of the reasons that it's been a really tricky dynamic um, because it's an appealing trade that's not really working great. Um, and I'm trying to think of how else I can sort of square up that idea. Yeah, here's another thing, you know, iron ore since since the whisper of China reopening, mm -hmm. iron ore has gone from the bottom left to the top right of your screen. It's probably rallied 40% in the last six weeks. Mm -hmm. Base metals, nothing. Energy, nothing. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's really, really, it's really difficult to, to sort of connect those dots all the time. And I'm kind of attributing it to this, uh, you know, this sort of chaotic state of the markets that we're in right now. Right. On the energy side of that, kind of carbon neutral target that they have. Do you think that we're seeing a broader turn by the public of being more accepting of nuclear energy and by extension, uranium as well? You know, I can't get a read on it. You know, it feels like at least the right people are circulating the right information. You know, like it's important to me that people like Doomberg and Grant Williams and, you know, other, other you know, major voices in the market are, are talking about that uranium is a natural transition, you know, and, and like Doomberg says, if we were all standing around and, and uranium and, and the nuclear power was discovered today, we would probably go ahead and use it as the, you know, be all and end all and salvation for everything, right? It just makes all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. But we've been conditioned with, you know, a couple of nuclear accidents on the course of history, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like the environmental agencies have done a great job making everybody still be fearful of nuclear spills and things like that. And we've learned from Bloomberg and several other sources that in this day and age, they're pretty much totally containable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and everything becomes, a, you know, a game of dilution. And I think that they've sort of figured out how to uh, how to tame the sting of a nuclear accident. Mm -hmm. So with that being the case, I do think that at least it's permeating the psyche of the market. I'm a last sale rules guy, right? And, and if the uranium sector isn't going anywhere, then it's hard for me to say, oh, yeah, this is happening. We're going right to nuclear. You know, it's like, you know, and then and then there's the theory that once we know there's more there's more uranium definitely being brought onto the markets. Mm -hmm. So the sort of bear case in uranium is that, you know, with more production coming on to service any sort of nuclear operations that are going to pop up, there doesn't need to be an incremental move in the uranium price. So while it may mean that the mines can do a lot better, doing a lot more business, processing a lot more uranium, it doesn't necessarily mean that the price has to go higher, which is something to consider. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I think it's relevant. I try to keep my ear to that pulse and sort of not get caught up in the fact that if, if price action isn't going along with it, then the market's just not excited about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a, like you say, I think chaotic markets is is the best way to describe all of these things that we've talked about. But when we think about these broader themes that we've discussed here, do you look at the picks and shovels or drills and service rigs of these respective industries as strong ways to play these themes? And what kind of fundamentals must be in place for you to find these particular companies attractive? I'm not a fundamental guy. I'm a price action guy. So they land on my screen when they take off and move. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's quite literally how, you know, I, I that's the, the mode that I use to navigate my way into trades. You know, I'm usually looking for this. I'm usually hunting the same pattern, but let, let's stick to the sort of energy uh, investments where, you know, the picks and shovels and the drills, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think I'm sticking to my guns this year that even though technology got off to a, you know, a bang and start with like, you know, kind of social media and, and semiconductors, you know, really leading the pack on the year that by the time the year is over, that it's still going to be energy and natural resources that wind up performing because I'd still think that we're going to be in a higher rate environment where broadly speaking, the S&P goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. So I think the S&P goes nowhere because the big, big tech is probably going to be challenged in a rising rate environment. Mm -hmm. So I think big tech goes sideways to nowhere, maybe a little bit lower. And that really weighs on the broader indices but like we saw last year with the S&P off 16%, you still had oil services up 48% and energy up 40 something percent and 30, you know, up um, up 30 to 40%, which are pulled backs from the highs, mm-hmm. right? So at least, you know, the market has given you an example that those energy sectors and natural resources sectors can rally in the face of an S&P slide. And so I think that that's important. And I think that that's what's going to... Um, I think we're kind of living through a short covering rally in technology that's probably going to find a level and fail while natural resources stocks continue to perform. You know, we gave we gave that one example in, in refiners. We can start there and work backwards, right? The crack spread goes from their margin being $10 historically to being 30 bit at $60. Mm-hmm. That's why the stocks are up 65% last year. Yeah. You know, because that is likely to continue as long as gasoline demand remains steady to constant, mm-hmm. right? We can go into recession and gasoline, global gasoline demand can remain absolutely flat, mm-hmm. right? And those companies are just going to be churning out money, you know, and then you try to get into the XME trade, which has a lot of, you know, coal stocks and um, steel stocks and um, base metal miners and, you know, names like Freeport and Alcoa mining copper and aluminum and, you know, that that trade is working because those stocks have been putting up great earnings and they do have a great fundamental story. Mm-hmm. You know, the oil services sector got, if you heard the Schlumberger earnings report a couple of weeks ago, I think it was their last earnings report. I mean, it was bullish. The CEO sounded bullish. Stock reaction was bullish. <laughs> you know, it's like that that things are going well in that part of the world, even though the oil price is, you know, $50 off the highs. Right. So to me, you know, those are the sectors that I that I'm still you know attracted to that I that I feel like I have at least a little bit of an edge in, and I can hunt and I can still you know trade the other ones technically and and trade the breakout and semiconductors and try to make some money there while that's going while that party is going on. Mm-hmm. But that's just the way that I'm thinking as a trader all the time. Mm-hmm. We've kind of touched on the idea of how you're looking at tech right now. 
does this rising rate environment and debt refinancing play play the biggest role there in why you're kind of bearish on that sector? Yeah, I do. And it also goes back to the fact that, you know, they had uh, technology just had such an unbelievable setup for so long. And then they got a cherry on top of the cake in the lockdowns, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, we had we've had rates pinned. You know, we've had low interest rates, essentially, and ample liquidity for, you know, the growth companies to finance their growth, you know, really, really cheaply for a long time without any kind of inflationary threat at all. You know, if you if you remember, we went through years where the Federal Reserve was desperately trying to get headline CPI north of two, mm-hmm. you know, and now it's kind of like, you know, the worm has turned and you got to be careful what you wish for. But um, let me get back to my original idea. So the reason I'm bearish tech is because, you know, they, they flourished for so long on low interest rates and then we had the lockdown low. Mm-hmm. Right. Where we had the, the stocks crash, but then we had the bubble in big tech, certainly coming out of the lockdown when everybody was home shopping on Amazon, you know, being social on Facebook, you know, and that, that was basically it. So all those stocks had, you know, their moment to shine and where the world just was not going to look any better for them. Mm-hmm. And then obviously with the pivot much higher in rates, that party is over. And to my, in my opinion, the danger about it is that everybody that I know that was long all of those names in their portfolio and just took the hit last year, they're still long. You know, everybody's still long Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft. You know, nobody sells that stuff because they're still legacy ideas. Right. And I think that once we see, you know, the the majority of retail finally say, yeah, you know what, I'm done with these. There's been two or three years and I'm talking about at the end of this year. And maybe next year, yeah, it's been two, three years of, you know, no performance out of these things. I'm finally getting rid of them. Then I can, then I can say maybe there's a bottom in tech somewhere. But that's kind of how I'm looking for this to pan out. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the coin, you know, energy is, you know, three percent of the S and P. Right. You know, so it's still, it's still got so much upside to go versus the S and P itself that it's really easy for me to stay bullish in sectors like that. Mm-hmm. One of the, I guess, stories that has kind of made made news within the commodity circles is that the CFTC hasn't been able to produce a commitment of traders report for several reporting periods now. So they cited hacks as being part of the reason behind that. So how do you, how do you see that situation developing and, and is it suspect to you and, and why are they releasing data in the way that they are? Man, you know, it's easy to get conspiratorial here and knowing that that isn't necessarily a bad way to go in the last several years. It's, it's probably worth kind of just, you know, kicking around some ideas. You know, there are people and I'm not I'm, I'm going to kind of just frame this from the third person because I don't know what I think about it. Right. So what I'll tell you what's out there is there, you know, there are people that are saying, like, how is it possible that, you know, we've got the energy department gushing the strategic petroleum reserve out, trying to get the price of oil higher, lower and gasoline lower. And all of a sudden we can't get a read on futures positions for a really long time. Right. That leads the nervous, anxious futures trader to think that maybe there's some chicanery going on in the futures markets. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't necessarily believe that that's the case. I don't know if, if, if that has anything to do with it. Um, it's a little bit strange. Like the commitment of traders reports is are important, um, but they're certainly not the be all and end all to trading. And as you can see, for the last several weeks, the sun keeps rising without them. 
So it's not like they are, uh, you know, they're not critical to the plumbing of the financial structure. Mm-hmm. You just put it this way. I, I just have to lump the ion hack into the other set of attacks that we've seen on American soil that I don't really know how to process. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I kind of put them in the same pile, right? For a string there, we saw all those attacks on the food processing plants. And then we saw the gunfire attacks at the baseload power stations. And then we saw all the train derailments. And then we see, right? And then we've got hacks galore going on. And I don't know, maybe somebody's upset that they got their pipeline blown up. Maybe it's somebody else entirely. I have no freaking clue. Mm-hmm. But as a tape reader, it's all observable. It's observable, isn't it, Tom? Right? I mean, I'm not making any of this up. Mm-hmm. Just because I don't know what's causing it doesn't mean it's not happening because we can point to it. So I kind of throw the ion hack into that pile with, man, I got a feeling that somebody that's trying to wreak havoc here has just found some vulnerable buttons. Mm-hmm. And whether it's on the train track in Ohio or on this server where the ion system is, they just decided to throw a couple of butter knives in and, and see what they can do. And apparently it's working. So that's my only read on that is that I, I don't know, but I kind of throw it into a little bit of a conspiratorial pile and say that something somebody is doing this to us on purpose. Right. Yeah, it's hard to kind of take a step back and, and look at all of these situations, all of these particular events and think that there's not maybe a, a bigger theme there, right? You 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 say it as attacks, you know, they're they're not necessarily always framed like that. But again, taking taking a bigger step back and viewing it from a more, as you say, maybe a macro lens, it it's hard to not see a theme there. Yeah, well, you know, we had we just had you know one of the last of the Mohican accredited journalists write a piece about the Nord Stream pipeline being blown up by the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Right now, I mean, you know, if you're on the other side of that coin and and you have sort of proof to that. Or you have that that's your idea. And then you see the approach by the administration after that. Right. Right. Saying that it is completely, you know, um, I think the I think the term that they used was malarkey was was the guy's term from um, the Pentagon, the the spokesperson. Now, they don't they don't see the media getting Jake Sullivan or Victoria Newland on 60 Minutes and saying, hey, what's the story here? You know, the whole world thinks and the whole world is guessing. And one journalist has got one really good source that says that you guys did it. You want to defend, you know, there's no there's no coming to a moment of clarity there. There is just an outright denial. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's going on and you're unhappy with that process and you feel that you were the one that was wronged, then, you know, I understand that none of these uh, all of these things that happened on U.S. soil could be framed as accidents that I just say attacks. Because it seems like the pace and the regularity of them has certainly picked up, you know, and especially and seeing, in per, in particular sectors. Yeah, exactly. Very right. Exactly. Very directly related to the natural resources sectors. Kind of a like you take our pipeline, we take your, you know, chemical train. And I know the East Palestine Ohio train is a, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a unicorn of its own in terms of how toxic it is and whether it's really not that dangerous and whether the EPA's response was good or whatever it is. Um, that seemed extremely unnatural and there's a mushroom cloud in the sky. So <laughs> it's it's something it's something that I think should probably be addressed at some level. That's all. Um, and that's where we are, man. You know, Tom, that, that's the whole the whole chaotic thing is 
fielding all these headlines and, and, you know, getting really concerned and then looking over at the VIX and the VIX is 20 bit at 21 and doesn't really care. And the equity market's trading like May wheat and everybody's fine with it. Um, oil's trading sideways right at this price, likes these prices, doesn't dip much, doesn't rally much. You know, the spreads are where they've been for a month now almost. And, um, you know, it's business as usual in the commodity markets, which at the moment is kind of leading them down. But to me, they're trading down like a beach ball underwater, just waiting for like one bigger headline, one more important headline, one headline more related to, you know, U.S. in support of Taiwan or something like that, that I feel like we're being set up for. And next thing you know, like you can't buy oil once that headline comes out. So I'm happy to sit here and babysit the position for a little while until we get it or until the market takes me out. I have no problem leaving that bet up on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And as you say, being nimble and understanding understanding why you're positioned the way you are is is most important here, I think. Tony, I want to thank yeah. you for your go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying, and then when you when you at least see um oil and gasoline pound the downside a bunch of times and not curl over, at least you know that that's where your risk is, right? And that's really all it is. I'm not even claiming as much that I'm gonna be right in as yeah. much as I like the fact that I can probably risk three and make, I don't know, 10, 15, you know, who knows on the upside in, 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 a, in a headline like that. So I just feel like that's what the sentiment is ripe for. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Tony. I want to thank you for your for your time today. Is there anything else that maybe we didn't touch on that is on your mind or that maybe you're you're looking forward to for this this next quarter that's maybe top of your mind to to include in your list for quarter two here? Yeah, you know, I came into the year um, hunting the upside oil trade, and and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I do want to sound like a really capable trader, right? And a really capable trader might be hunting this move where oil goes through the 50-day, the 100-day, the 200-day and keeps going. Mm -hmm. And we may hunt that move and take five or 10 shots at it and miss and be perfectly okay to continue to shoot at that target. Because to me, that's still the sort of low-hanging fruit where we get into some kind of a political resource nationalistic disruption and all of a sudden crude starts tripping up through those moving averages and doesn't come back for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I just want to say that, you know, I don't mind sounding like a broken record because I still think that the chances of that trade happening in 2023 are so high mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm willing to sort of, like I said, waste many bullets shooting at it before I get it right. right. So that's one thing that I'm that, that, you know, as a trader, you can't get it off your brain until the market proves that it's something that's not going to happen. So I'm going to keep hunting that until, until I, until I see it transform right before my eyes. And then the one other thing that I would just love, if you could give me a chance for a shameless plug, mm-hmm. go to um, TG macro at substack.com, which is um, navigator TV. So that's my new free offering where I've been putting out videos about the markets between two and five minutes that are on, you know, either specific topics or um, just re- recaps of the week. And they have some of my views included. So that that list has been growing really nicely. So I just wanted to mention it here on your show if I could. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was going to say you you started a new sub stack since the last time we spoke. And yeah, very concise, short videos to to let people know what you're thinking. Of course. You're available on Twitter as well at TG Macro and tgmacro.com, right? That's the one, man. Thanks so much, Tom. And wonderful. Thanks for your time today, Tony. I really appreciate it.
Anytime. I'll be back anytime you need me, Tom. That was awesome. Excellent. Take care. See you, pal. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.